everyone. This is Darker Days Radio, episode number 42. I'm Mike, and this is Chris. How's it going, Chris? Pretty good. Um, survived the apocalypse, so it must be good. Project Ragnarok was a roaring success. So I think uh, I think the uh, New World Order will be sending out bonuses to their agents fairly soon. Um, yeah, actually, speaking of the apocalypse, because where I live is like on a hill. So in Germany, mm-hmm. they're really big on fireworks at New Year's. And yeah. everywhere around us, you could see fireworks going off. So it was kind of like the apocalypse slash the start of Blade Runner. Um, and I think Sam has some video of it, so yeah, that might turn up at some point online. Cool. How was your New Year and Christmas and stuff? Oh, Christmas is great. I had two Christmases. Just had the second one <laughs> yesterday. So uh, actually, Grief. I got... Are you familiar with uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion? Yes. Yeah, I got the complete series of that, so... The old one or the new version? The, the old version. Book. The real version. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where the rebuild's going. So, um, yeah, I, like. I haven't Apparently, seen it at all. It's, I think it's had some good reviews. So, I think they might have been tightening up things. And some of the apparently some of the scenes like are scene for scene identical, just better looking. Oh, so, well, I mean, uh, I finally I watched the um, what's it called? E- End of Evangelion. Yeah. Okay. The the movie that like. Yeah. So, so the last two episodes of Evangelion, for anyone that's seen it, are just ridiculous and weird and don't make that much sense. But if you watch that movie and you think about it a whole lot, you can actually understand what the heck was happening <laughs> in those last two episodes. But then the second half of that movie just doesn't make any sense. So I think they made another movie after that to try to explain things more, which I have not seen. Yeah, and I think that's what Rebuild's meant to be trying to lead up to is, again, retelling better everything that leads up to that end and, you know doing some retcons and fixing it. Um, have you watched Razafon? Uh, no, I have not. Some pe- I quite like it. Some people call it kind of Evangelion light. Uh, it has some of the same themes and concepts in that. So it's worth checking out. And the uh, the mecha design is quite cool in it. And, oh, is that the one uh, with like the kind of Aztec sort of yes, yes. mecha? Okay, I'm familiar with that. I think it's on Crunchyroll, so I could probably check it out. Yeah, it's wicked. Um, yeah, that kind of leads us on to World of Darkness news then, I guess, with Aztec stuff, sort of, is related to something else going on. So, um, should we go on into the news segment? I think we should. Oh, yes. So, Mummy the Curse. That has a lot of money now towards it, and yep. it has so much that uh, in when I wrote up the show notes yesterday night, um, I had said, say, oh, you know, it's not been added on yet as a uh, stretch goal, but now it has been funded. So basically, anyone that's got the paid for the to get the PDF or the um, the hard copy will also be getting not only uh, was it. Uh, City Necropolis, or is that how they call them? City Necropolis? Um, Yep. Yep. Yeah, DC, Washington, DC. But we will also now be getting City Necropolis Rio, which is great because Rio is like a rarity in World of Darkness books, as in it's a non-US city book. So I'm really quite excited about that. That's going to be excellent. 
And they they haven't yet more stretch goals <laughs> beyond that. But I don't know what else they can add on yet. So oh, um, it was actually it's cursed necropolis. Cursed necropolis. That's yeah, it sounds cool. Okay. Good. And of course, we just found out that Vampire the Requiem, the Chronicle book that's going to be coming out, which was formerly mm-hmm. uh, the Strix Chronicles, then Sex Murder, is actually going to be called Blood and Smoke. Yes. Yeah. Pretty cool title, but I think we should actually call it Blood and Smoke. The Strix Murder Chronicle. <laughs> yeah, um, I think we I've posted up on the uh, on our Google Plus community. They um, there's some playtest rules for Majesty that they're looking at, which again looks awesome. Mm-hmm. So there's some definite excitement for this book uh, for Vampire the Requiem. It will be definitely on my list of things to get. Yep, David Hill is doing all the disciplines, right? Um, or he's at least put up a lot of his, his, his... He's, he said he's put up some ideas for it and he's putting some of the maybe more extreme right, changes. Right. So whether they get through is one thing or another. Uh, the latest uh, Majesty Rules put up by uh, Rose Bailey. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll see some more disciplines in the near future. Indeed, indeed. And what's this about the uh, WAD MMO having uh, more features tested? Yeah, I saw this on um, on the wonderful blog, which is kind of like uh, our friends at uh, wadnews.net, um, that, let me just find this, that there's um, been some internal testing of some new features. Mm-hmm. And the way it reads is basically that uh, this testing is occurring in more than one uh, location. And actually, I'm glad I just gone to something because there's another update here. So basically, there's a three-week feature test beginning. And so this is taking place at a number of branches, which kind of gives you the feel that, oh, okay, so CCP is directing more resources to what they're doing. Good. And now I've just gone onto the WOD News website. And in fact, there's an update from last night. So Chris got in contact with the guys. And it's saying that in Iceland, they're doing a three-week internal feature test. Um, and then uh, Pete, a.k.a. Harlequin, said, can you tell us what those features are? Uh, last time you mentioned rooftop leaping. And he said, uh, only a test, but it covers things like combat, discipline, sandbox play, and character advancement. It is only a test. That sounds like a fucking shit ton of stuff to use, though, in a mm, test. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like, it, it sounds like a pretty much almost a, a game so uh, rather than you know just doing some white room testing uh, test results to be pest, uh, so someone asked is there any chance these be po- the results to be posted on Twitter sure and his response is sure if they're vague enough lol so you know they're, they're, they're basically playing the game to a certain extent in some rather early form but that's kind of cool to hear. Yeah, definitely. This might be a good time to actually mention uh, as well that there's going to be a World of Darkness MMO podcast coming out pretty soon. Mm, yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm involved in it. Chris, you're involved. And uh, so is James. Yes, James. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, because obviously I saw it put up and Pete basically didn't want to wrap me into it because you know, time difference. Well, well, Chris, but, Chris you as know. you remember, the last time Peter was on the show, you stayed up until like four in the morning. <laughs> yeah, that was a rarity, though. That was, that was. <laughs> but but um, but I think we can do some different things anyway, because obviously, um, so James, who appears on our Chronicle Design series, and hopefully will be coming back for some more Darklings and so forth. He ha- he's actually you know 
in the been in the business of uh, of MMO design um, and playtesting, mm-hmm. and so I think he worked on APB, and he's currently going back to work on uh, some other stuff. He worked at uh, uh, big point and they're kind of like browser-based MMOs mm-hmm. and doing some game design there and his own main expertise is on like uh you know small monetization of games you know the small payments and how that can like bankroll MMOs but you know he, he tests this, this type of stuff for his living yep. so it'll be kind of cool to have him involved with the show and to obviously you know he he can be our on-the-spot expert um, in this field. So, yeah, it's kind of cool. It'd be good to talk gaming in general and with what people want to see and hope to see and what we will get in the World of Darkness MMO. Definitely. And one last bit of news is that, uh, this is pretty cool, a LARP troop in the DC area actually adopted a highway. So, uh, mm. nice masquerade breach, dark capital domain of the camera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... <laughs> Awesome, but yeah, at least may, maybe it's just a uh, it's a honeypot trap for uh, hunters. Mm-hmm. Yep, and uh, we also got quite a bit in the mailbag. Oh yeah. So Chris, want to go through that? Yeah, sure. Um, so we got quite a few things in the mailbag. Uh, Martin, uh, I hope I pronounce this right. Uh, Crow, I think, is a silent. Uh, HG whatever mm-hmm. anyway, he can correct us. Um, has sent us some more ideas for the Conan camera. Uh, and in fact, he and a few of us on the Google Plus community are now, you know, putting forward more films and music and books that we should uh, pay attention to. Uh, Stunadal had his great secret frequency uh, submission. Uh, also, we have a submission from uh, Michael Parker, uh, Travis Wilson, and Martin also looking to get involved in submissions for Forgotten Law, mm-hmm. and also on our. I'm trying to think which place did he post this. I think it was on the Google Plus community. Uh, Chris uh, Christopher Helton has given us a question for our interview. Uh, so yeah, it was a full mail. Indeed. And Chris, I didn't even and, uh, didn't even mention this to you, but I randomly decided the winners to the contest. Oh, fine. Yeah. Well. <laughs> um, and they are Michael Parker and Peter Marshall. So we'll be getting the uh, codes to you. Or sending you World of Darkness anthology or something like that uh, in the near future. So expect that soon. Mm-hmm. And uh, with that, I think it's time to move on to our interview. So today for an interview, we have Nancy Collins, an award-winning author of the Sonia Blue novels, as well as Weird West novels published by White Wolf and a plethora of other books, comic books and a few screenplays, I understand. So, Nancy, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for having me here. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, I guess you've uh, been on our radar for quite a while since uh, you worked with uh, White Wolf uh, back in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, and White Wolf was your publisher for Sonya Blue and uh, various other novels. Sonya Blue actually started in 89. The first Sonya Blue novel was uh, published by on the Onyx imprint of what was then called Signet. But uh, White Wolf did uh, publish a couple of the uh, original novels later in the series. Yeah, definitely. And Sonya Blue is very interesting because um, it has some similar similarities to Vampire the Masquerade and other 
uh, White Wolf Games, but it actually came before. Uh-huh. It's kind of really cool to see uh, someone came up with a very similar ideas independently and then ended up working with White Wolf and seemed to have a very good relationship. So um, I guess, how did, how did the relationship with White Wolf start? Well, I first met them at Dragon Con in Atlanta. I guess it would have to be about 91 or 92. And they had their table somewhat close to, to mine. Uh, I was a guest at the convention. And the similarities between the products had already been kind of pointed out a couple of times. And we met. And um, they were showing some interest in, in uh, uh, moving into fiction publishing that had nothing to do with the world of darkness. Uh, they were publishing Harlan Ellison, Neil Gaiman, Michael Moorcock, and uh, Neil, uh, uh, Neil and I are friends, and I kind of ended up at a party with Neil and White Wolf, and through being in that circle, kind of got included in, in their publishing plans. And they were very interested in the uh, Sanya Blue property because it was so very similar uh, in tone to uh, Vampire the Masquerade, which I had not heard of. What was the difference uh, working with previously like a uh, a larger publisher and then starting to work with this role-playing game company that was getting into novels and that sort of thing? Uh, did you notice much of a difference? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was, uh, there was a considerable difference. At, at the time, you have to understand, this was when, when I moved over to White Wolf. This was at the start of when major publishing, you know, big publishing was starting to... Um, uh, withdraw from the horror dark fantasy. They had been um, publishing quite a bit in that genre. And then about, 90, about 93, 94, they started uh, retracting. There weren't enough of us who were Stephen King. I guess that's what boils down to. Yeah, I definitely remember uh, Barnes & Noble right now doesn't have any sort of a horror section. Uh, mostly just gets wrapped into you know sci-fi and fantasy and uh, Borders, when it was still around, had a very, very small, maybe like one bookshelf section for horror and, and dark fantasy. So, yeah, that's uh, rather unfortunate, uh, especially because there's a lot of talented authors uh, in the horror genre uh, itself. Oh, yeah. Well, well, when I first got started in, uh, back in 88, that's when I sold my first novel, Sunglasses After Dark. And there wasn't really um, a horror sub- subsection in any of the bookstores at the time. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, you were just part of the fiction wall, uh, is what they called it, uh, in like Walden books, if you can remember those. Uh, yep. There's just a wall of paperbacks um, uh, that was the, the general mass market. And um, it wasn't until they started realizing they were making really good sales with, um, let's say, Peter Straub, uh, King, Anne Rice, Ty Barker, um, uh, Robert McCammon. These were all making the bestseller lists, and they decided to make a um, separate category of horror. And unfortunately, when they did that, they more or less ghettoized it, and and instead of having everyone look at it, you know, go, you know just see it in front of them, it, it, it ended up just being the people who were interested enough to go into that into that section of the bookstore, mm. and that right, kind of like right. spelled the beginning of the end for it. I got you. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, before we start talking about uh, Sonia Boo specifically, what are some of the uh, horror authors that uh, really inspired you? Or what are some of like TV shows or movies that, uh, you know, kind of get your, your juices flowing for, for writing and, and coming up with ideas? I was rather lucky in that uh, as a child that my mother was a big fan of reading 
especially like mysteries, science fiction, horror, that kind of stuff. So I kind of grew up reading the stuff that she had been reading, uh, kind of like her, her hand-me-downs. Um, so I, I started off reading mysteries and gothic romances like, uh, like a lot of girls do. And, um, and then slowly m- moved into science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And um, one of the um, first um, authors that, that really got my attention was Roland Dahl because um, I had I was reading him as a child, reading the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory books. And then uh, I think I was about 10, 11 years old, and I walked into the library, and I see this thing called Kiss Kiss. And I go, oh, it's, I recognize that. That's good, dude. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, take it home and read Lamb to the Slaughter. So <laughs> um, that kind of kind of paved the way. And and the, and one of the first books that I, I can remember reading um, was a, um, uh, a hardback collection of uh, Charles Adams cartoons from the New Yorker that my mother had. And uh, so I was I was reading Charles Adams when I was like uh, probably about three or four. You know, I, I, I didn't even, I, I was just looking at the pictures. It was another year before I was actually able to under, you know, read my, what they said, but I was already getting into, you know, you know I guess it'd be the equivalent nowadays of, you know, of a child being handed, you know, uh, Gory's Gastly's uh, to, to, as a primer. <laughs> so, right. And um, I've also, I was also became very, um, uh, Robert Block was an early influence. Um, uh, so was um, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Robert E. Howard. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the a lot of the weird tales writers who were being re- reprinted at that time in paperback editions uh, from Lancer and and Ballantine in the uh, late '60s, early '70s. So Nancy, you have an Indiegogo campaign going on right now for a new Sonia Blue novel. And uh, Sonia Blue is very interesting because, uh, uh, as we mentioned before, she follows a, a kind of similar trend in, I guess, vampire and perhaps horror fiction that, that Vampire the Masquerade kind of followed, where you introduce both uh, gothic elements and uh, sort of punk elements. And as we know, Sonia is very uh, a pretty in-your-face kind of character, as is the world that she resides in. So what really is the origin of the Sonia Blue character and what inspired you to write that first novel, Sunglasses After Dark? Well, I created Sonia when I was in high school in the 70s and, and later came to hone her personality in the 80s. I myself was a punk. I was, I was involved in the punk scene when I was in college. So she is, you know, she comes kind of like out of first generation punk in America. Her genetic material, as I've, as I've described it, when I was growing up, there was almost no role models for young girls who wanted to be something besides June Cleaver or uh, Mrs. Brady. It, there, there were just a handful of them, and the most um, iconic uh, was uh, was uh, Mrs. Peel from the British TV series The Avengers, mm-hmm. uh, played by Diana Rigg, and she was a huge influence on me. She's one of the, the basic role models for Sonia, a woman who's competent, physically capable of taking care of herself, and 
is not particularly worried about whether she's seen as feminine or not. She, she is what she is, and she's more than capable of saving the whoever happens to be around her, including you know the guy. Yes, <laughs> yeah. And another influence on on Sonya was the original version of Blade from Tomb of Dracula, comic book series published by Marvel, uh, written by Marvel Man and illustrated by the, the late Gene Colan. And Blade's uh, quite different back then, because obviously oh yeah, my was, introduction to Blade was the film. Yeah, he was Shaft, yeah. He was Shaft. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was he was a bad shut-your-mouth. And <laughs> yeah. uh, he was... Um, that was incredibly... Uh, um, he was like one of my favorite favorite characters in, in the series. The, the original Tomb of uh, Dracula series is probably one of the one of the finest vampire series ever created um, uh, in its entirety. I, 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 at one point, I owned the entire print run, but uh, that was a long time ago and many moves. <laughs> but, uh, but Blade was a Blade was a big influence in his original incarnation. Another influence was uh, Humphrey Bogart's uh, as both Sam Spade and, and Philip Marlowe, that kind of world-weary, cynical romantic you know, uh, you know, noir feel. And, and, right. and, and that's probably the best way to describe Sonia Lewis's, and her world is vampire noir. Um, and she lives in a yeah. kind of a supernatural noir setting. And um, the final um, genetic piece well, actually, the, the other two pieces, one of which is uh, um, Patty Hearst. Her kidnapping uh, was a big thing when I was when I was a teenager. When I was about, I guess, like a, eighth grade or something. That was that was one of the first news stories I really paid attention to growing up because it involved someone close to my own age, and mm-hmm. just the idea of just being kidnapped. And taken off the street, and then returning in this this horrific predatory form later, you know, almost unrecognizable, is what you know was was a big thing for for Sonya Blue, and, and hence uh, and her name Sonya is uh, based on the name that uh, they gave uh, the SLA gave Patty Hearst when they you know took her into the fold, which was Tanya, and the final piece in the uh, puzzle is uh, is uh, Iggy Pop. Iggy Pop, all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Sonya is, is, is very much, um, her, especially the self-destructive, angry side. You know, I mean, uh, Sonya's been known to you know, go fight club on herself. And that whole punk ethos um, is it comes directly from... from uh, late 70s, early 80s, uh, was when I was getting involved in the, the punk scene in, in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, I was hanging out at a club called the Antenna Club, uh, where um, Alex Chilton was one of the regulars. And I, was, and, uh, and, uh, and I saw uh, Iggy Pop there. In fact, I, uh, I knew Alex, and, and uh, Alex introduced me to him. And uh, so that you know, I've run into Iggy Pop. That's pretty damn cool. Two or three <laughs> times over the course of my, I've come run into That's... him socially two, two or three times over the course of my life. So, <laughs> wow. 
Good stuff. All right, that actually puts uh, the your upcoming novel, Kill City, into very good perspective. And uh, I can definitely see why you have some concerns over, over the uh, trend in urban fantasy fiction uh, as mm-hmm. of late. Yeah. Yeah, because, um, I mean, that's one of the questions which my wife Sam was asking. It's like really um, kind of, we've seen a lot in fiction, like with these uh, strong lead female characters and... Um, such as, you know, we've had Buffy and, you know, Sookie and, and Bella and that. So um, is there, it's, yeah, it's interesting to see the return of Sonya Blue because in some respects, from my point of view, and and others may also agree, that Sonya Blue kind of sort of helps establish that, that concept of that character. But is it also the case of that you may feel also that, it's also been diluted with the media, and that's why it's also a good time for us all to have a new Sonya Blue uh, novel. Yeah, uh, you know, Sonya Blue was basically the first urban fantasy heroine. I mean, when Sunglasses After Dark was first published, that genre didn't exist. Yeah, it was yeah. it was called horror. I was grouped in the same category as as, as Clive Barker and and King. And Rice. I mean, there were there were there was the subcategory of vampire novels within horror, um, but urban fantasy as we know it really didn't exist, and and, and that wasn't until like the early '90s, and even mm. and then it was usually being applied to the works of like Charles Delint and Emma Bull, involving you know like elves and fairies living in yeah, right. in modern cities, and sometime over the course of the '90s or late '90s early 2000s that that mutated into vampire hunters and werewolf hunters and and people who screws them and you know screw vampires (laughs) and and werewolves and and yeah it kind of emerged after i set aside the sonya blue character and uh back in uh, 2002 and it just seems like each generation or iteration from sonya has been more uh, weenie. You know, hey. so, <laughs> just, they get progressively weenier <laughs> as you go along until now. You finally have Bella, who is, um, in my books, would be called a Renfield. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, it's not very uh, encouraging. <laughs> so, but, but yes, I think it, it's time to, to maybe bring back some real, uh, real teeth. And uh, to the uh, and some and put some put some real red blood back into the into the vampire urban fantasy genre. Yeah, because that's something that um, as I so as I say on on our list of like questions. So my wife's really you know big into um, the horror kind of genre and obviously what falls into urban fantasy. So she also asks like, so from your perspective, Nancy, then do you feel like vampires in cut in in the media and as years as you said is as each generation of like uh the presentation of vampires in like tv or books have they become like too humanized they've they've lost their menace or has the romance that they they've now seen synonymous with has that got in the way of like the actual you know the monster and really exploring what it is behind the vampire rather than the issues that occur if you're a vampire I, I think it's they've allowed romance to to over to overwhelm every other aspect of the genre. 
like I said, uh, sunglasses after dark in the, in the original Sonya Blue novels are basically a cross between horror and noir. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. they're a cross between romance and fantasy. Uh, they're romantic fantasies. They're not. There's almost no horror element in them whatsoever. Yeah. Or if not that, they're also a mixture between romance and action. There, there does, there doesn't seem to be much of a. a characters are vampires for the sake of being vampires, or werewolves for the sake of being werewolves. The, the predatory uh, existence of these creatures in relation to humans is rarely. Um, uh, discussed. You're, it, it's very obvious that the reader is supposed to identify more with the vampire and the werewolves and what have you than they are the humans in the book, mm. which I think is is actually rather dangerous because you're actually basically asking people to to identify with things that that are would in real life be predators uh, that would would want to kill you. So you're. Yeah. you're yeah, the idea is is that you 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 don't identify with yourself. You're identifying with uh, with the villain or the the big mm. bad. And um, in the World War II, those were called Quislings. <laughs> so mm. um, uh, it's it, it's kind of an interesting change from people wanting to be you know identifying and wanting to play as the vampire slayers to to wanting you to to envision yourself as the vampire. And not even wanting to change the vampire into a human or bring them back to humanity like in, say, Near Dark, mm. but to to just stay as vampires and continue to prey on humans. There's a lot going on psychologically right now in, in, in these, these uh, otherwise, you know, just frothy teen books. Yeah, the one thing that I always, because I've, I'm running right now my own uh, Vampire the Requiem Chronicle, and again, it's always trying to, for the the players playing those characters, always the consequence, reinforcing the consequences of being these monsters, and it's it's, and trying to reinforce that it's it's not a fun ride, it's not easy living as one of these immortal characters, and and almost, the whole point is to showcase that they are horrific characters, and and show that not these kind of. Bella and Suki or whatever the hell else is out there, or or um, what is it, Vampire Diaries as well. And I've never watched that. Uh, yeah, uh, we've watched a bit. Um, there's again the interesting ideas that you feel like you may be able to rescue, and then other times again there's the feeling that um, the the supernatural creatures being it's almost like the the characters are are whatever creatures as a vehicle to set up difficult romantic situations which to me yes. is no different it's no different to the super to the superhero genre so you look at say well spider-man or superman again they have issues due to what they are but yeah it, it's not fun because you really want to you want to see the actual monsters more and <laughs> we don't see that yeah the yeah i'm not saying that that paranormal romance and and urban fantasy and whatever are or bad, you shouldn't read them, or the young adult versions. I'm just saying that that shouldn't be the only thing that's available to read. Yeah. Um, that shouldn't be the only thing you can find on the bookshelves. Unfortunately, when you go into a bookstore now, and I and I 
I, I made a point last week of going to the local books a million, which is more or less what's replaced borders in this country. Hmm. And, um, and, uh, walked in to, um, to the section that's more or less aimed at all this and looked around, tried to find something that wasn't, um, that involved, you know, the supernatural and wasn't either zombies or Cthulhu or, or if it was hard, didn't involve serial killers and, um, and wasn't a paranormal romance, uh, a young adult novel, or a paranormal romance novel posing as a as an urban fantasy. Mm. And I found four books, Whoa. and uh, one of which was Anno Dracula, which is not recent. No, definitely not. And it was, so it was it was rather you know I knew it was bad. <laughs> I knew that I knew. The, the, the state of horror in this country or, or in the world really was bad, but I had no way of knowing it. Uh, I, I, I guess I just didn't want to realize it was this bad. And, uh, and when I was looking around, I was going, well, that, that explains why I haven't been able to, to get anything, get Sonny Blue sold. Yeah, so I guess this is a great time to talk about Kill City. What are you trying to achieve with the novel? And uh, can you give us kind of a taste of, of where the story of Sonia is going to be going? Kill City is, um, to a certain extent, my take on the whole uh, Twilight uh, teen vampire phenomenon. Uh, you have to kind of understand that Sunglasses After Dark itself was kind of born out of similar response I had to at the time of the Anne Rice vampire Lestat kind of um, uh, universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or I, it just seemed to me that, that the vampires were just being turned into 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 fops you know kind of for, you mm-hmm. know angsty navel gazing fern bar refugees uh, i think as someone once described them and and um of course i had no idea that later on down the line that they would end up looking like like hell's angels uh compared to what we have now but um <laughs> you know at least they didn't sparkle and uh um, <laughs> And they had sex, <laughs> so uh, they weren't afraid to have sex. So that was kind of where Sonia emerged from in the first place. So it shouldn't be surprising that she'd be awoken from her sleep by all this that's been going on with Twilight and the like. The basic premise behind uh, Kill City is that Sonia's been doing what she's been doing for the last 10 years, since the last time anyone checked in on her. And she's been out there killing vampires and doing what she does. And, and uh, she gets a uh, letter sent to her but, uh, from a man, a retired senator, claiming to have a, um, a knife that once belonged to the uh, French serial killer and Satanist, uh, Jean, uh, Jean Durand, better known to history as Bluebeard, mm-hmm. and, um, which was used to kill hundreds of uh, young children in ritual sacrifice. And w- what Sonia does for kind of one of her side hobbies is uh, collecting pieces of human atrocity. The, the evil that m- man does lives on a- a- long after he's gone. And in this case, you know, uh, she collects things that belong to, to human monsters because she has to deal with demons mm. as information brokers. Uh, to know where to, you know, if she's looking for certain vampires, usually the demons know where they are. 
and she has a uh, certain information broker uh, living in New Orleans named Malfi, who is uh, uh, has a bad uh, addiction to uh, human evil. Uh, he, she basically buys buys up these things and gives them to them, when, and he, <laughs> you know, basically does the equivalent of grinding them up and snorting them. <laughs> so, uh, nice. you know, she's got all kinds of things that she uses as trade bait for information, and she's um, she's got like Jack the Ripper's valise, and she's got uh, I think a guillotine that was used during the, the Reign of Terror. It, she she uses as a front an antique store to keep all these things, but the senator has. Um, fabled bluebeard knife and if it's really what it is she she needs it she wants it and when she goes to meet him it turns out that he's he's lured her there with the intention of and he knows what she is and he she, she know he knows she's uh not not only a vampire hunter but a vampire and uh the reason he's lured her here there is because he needs her help because his his granddaughter who is a big fan of this um uh, young adult vampire series called Eventide. Uh, she met some guy on the internet claiming to be a vampire, and not just a vampire, but the, the vampire from the book. And oh, right. uh, she yeah. and she ran off with him. And, uh, uh, and at first he just thought it was just some pedophile pulling a fast one, or uh, or that she'd been kidnapped, and they kept expecting a ransom demand, and nothing happened. Very similar to what happened with Sonia. She, too, was kidnapped. She, and she was a child of privilege, and but apparently was kidnapped, and no one ever heard from her again. And he sends out his bodyguards. He, he, found, he finds out where she is, sends out his bodyguards to, uh, to snatch her back, only to, they end up being slaughtered. Uh, they basically walk into a nest of vampires. And get slaughtered, and then uh, that's when he realizes that um, uh, what he had heard—the uh, reason that he knows Sonya is a, the senator knows Sonya is a vampire and a vampire hunter—is because he knew her human father, you know, oh, okay. a good friend, and uh, and on his deathbed, Jacob Thorne, Sonya's father, had confessed what happened to his daughter to him. Hmm. The senator thought he was crazy, but you know, but now he knows that he wasn't. And so he, he's tracked her down and, and is basically kind of blackmailing her and threatening to, to let people know where she is um, and because he needs her to go and, and, and find his granddaughter and bring her back. So it's, it, you kind of see it as a combination of, uh, let's say, The Searchers, The Big Sleep, and uh, George E. Scott's Hardcore uh, with Vampires. Mm-hmm. Cool. And uh, so she now has to go and find. She's basically following behind this group and discovers that, uh, thanks to the popularity of this series um, of, of books, uh, it's given the vampire community um, uh, the idea of like luring young girls to them and utilizing them for their own needs. And uh, they don't even have to pretend that they're not vampires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they've got brothels set up. They're basically, you know, they become pimps, and they, you know, they, they use them uh, for for various reasons. All of them exploitative, you know, destructive. And uh, Sonia is basically following after this, you know, this girl going from from place to place, trying to figure out where, you know, you know, where she is. 
and eventually leads her back to, to New Orleans, uh, which is uh, still struggling, you know, the after effects of Katrina. Yeah. And, and there's a kind of a war for the soul of the city going on amongst its uh, supernatural creatures. And it's basically the vampires and the zombies are, are in the midst of a throwdown as to who's going to be running things. So uh, two di different forms of the living dead. And, uh, uh, and she's basically in the, caught up in the middle of that and has to get the girl and take her and then take her home. So there's 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 a lot going on in the book, obviously. So cool. Uh, but we, we get such things as going to the Las Vegas, you know, the vampire brothel in the desert in Las Vegas, that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, it's a little little bit of everything in modern noir, incorporating classic and, and modern noir elements. It's in Vegas, stays in Vegas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does sound like there's quite a bit going on. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's basically the, the general plot of Kill City. Good, yeah. Kill City definitely sounds like it's a, a really critical book to uh, get out there, um, kind of take back the uh, the genre in some ways. So how, how can people get involved with the uh, Indiegogo campaign? Well, they can go to Indiegogo, and um, uh, it's under Kill City, colon, the return of Sonya Blue. Right now we are... 39% funded. I basically set the uh, goal of 7,500, which will enable me to at least um, finish the book. I've got about 50 to 75 pages done. And the, uh, I figured it'll be a 300, 325 page book. Originally, I had hoped to do a, print, a hardcover print run of 500, but the economy is just not cooperating right now. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard out there right now. And, uh, just I would have to have paid up front um, for the entire print run, which, you know, and they're not very forgiving about those things. Right. So I realized I got to rethink what it takes just to get this book finished and out there in some format. Uh, so I, I went to Indiegogo, which at least has flexible funding. Uh, that allows you to at least keep the money even if you don't make your goal, which at least – enable me to to put some of that to towards getting the book finished and that, that includes uh, uh paying my cover artist sean harder who's a very talented graphic artist he's uh done the uh covers for the uh sonny blue series in ebook form which are available from uh premier uh digital publishing uh that's the more it, that's the more recent covers isn't it because mm -hmm. um yeah. i've i've got on my uh on my tablet um, that version of uh, Sunglasses After Dark, and yeah, those covers are great. <laughs> They're really cool. I really Very like good. them. Yeah, he's he's done those, um, uh, and also uh, doing the little the little things. I I've decided to go with Create Space in order to create an actual physical copy of the book, not just do it as digital, but also have uh, paying up front for a, like a print run of five hundred or something. Do it through print on demand uh, through Create Space. Um, and it is kind of it, it is kind of uh, uh, ironic that the, the digital revolution, which has impacted uh, livelihoods of writers in a very negative fashion, it, at the same time has provided us with uh, 
the means of um, you know, basically placing the means of production in our hands at a at a, at a an affordable cost, mm-hmm. uh, and and also provided us with a direct pipeline to to our readerships, going around the publisher, what what used to be you know, the purview of the publisher, and I tried self publishing like 10, 12 years ago, and it was considerably more expensive than it is now. It's now within, you know, basically almost anyone's reach. And it took a little bit of condition. I had to break some conditioning because like a lot of professional writers, um, I was pretty much taught, you know, that I just write. That's what I do. I write. I let, I let my agent handle my stuff and I, let the publisher do what the publisher is going to do, and I just write. Unfortunately, the way things have happened in the in- industry, um, a lot of that is now on the on the author, hmm. and publishers don't do nearly what they used to do. So, if I'm going to end up doing almost all the work that the publisher used to do, I might as well see the profits from it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, right, right, right. The, one of the things, um, I guess, then with the route you're going with. Also, um, with making hard copies, because that's the I've seen on the um, on the re- the reward tiers for the pledging on Indiegogo. So you know you can pledge to just get the the I will say DRM free free version of uh, mm-hmm. of the uh, of the of the digital form, which for me is great because like we have a Kindle and we've got you know an Android phone, and it's like it's nice to you can shuffle these things between them and. That's always good to know you can actually use all your devices. Pisses yeah, me off so I'm, much. Yeah, I'll be utilizing a, a, a um, platform called uh, Book Club. I know it's hard to say that, and <laughs> if people understand what it says, bkclb.net. Okay. It's still beta testing, but um, it it'll, enables you to to keep your your ebooks up there on on online for sale, and not only. Are they for sale? But you can also generate um, um, passwords for free downloads to reviewers and other and other people. Something that yeah. I don't have uh, that ability through through Amazon or or Nook or or, or, or iTunes. Yeah. So basically, anyone who who buys that thing, I have the ability to give them uh, passwords. Yeah. For downloads. And 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 it's a lot more protective than just having a, a you know a file share system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then with the and then with your you've also got reward tiers for physical copies. So I mean, is the route you're going along with this as well? I mean, I think we've seen this also with like RPG games um, because you know, you with the with the pledge system, you know exactly how many of these physical copies yes. you have to make. So there's there's no dead stock you know sitting somewhere wasting away and you know everyone actually all the, all the money is that, used actually learned that technique through comics yeah okay uh, comics has been have been doing the advanced sale uh, bit for, for for decades now uh, because of their all the different uh, uh, alternate covers that they were offering in the 90s believe me marvel mm-hmm. didn't produce more than they needed <laughs> on, on those they would they would advertise them and then and crunch the numbers once they came in, and uh, they knew exactly how many they needed to to uh, to s- send out to the shops. Yeah. And uh, with uh, the trade paper edition, uh, it, you know, obviously the the benefit from from 
uh, contributing is that you'll have it signed. Yeah, but I'll be making it available through uh, CreateSpace, which is also uh, means it'll be distributed through Amazon. So I'm not worried about distribution on that end because um, Amazon, uh, you know, killed borders. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not particularly worried about that. Um, and they also offer hardback. Um, uh, you can get hardbacks published through uh, CreateSpace, but the only people who can or- place those orders are the um, publisher slash authors. Mm-hmm. So it, it it's not the same as having a limited edition, but it's but it's not that that different from having a limited edition since the only way you can get it is from the author themselves. Yeah. But, but like I said, the, the, the funds that I'm getting are uh, going towards um, you know having to buy ISBNs. Uh, mm. the, you know, the, if you're going to have a physical copy, you have to have ISBNs. Plus, yeah. uh, if I'm distributing it through um, overseas, I have to have an ISBN even on the e-books. Same with iTunes if you're not being uh, sub-published through Smashwords, which is usually how I do it. You know? yeah, but it, this would be – I would be treating this as a, as a genuine release for my – I have a self-publishing plat, um, concern called Hopedale Press, and I've – Got about twenty-five ebooks out right now, but this would be my first actual physical book. I also noticed that one of the rewards is uh, that you or <laughs> uh, maybe one of your own creations could get killed off by Sonya Blue. Yes, uh, it's a, it's a very interesting one. <laughs> yeah, well, I've had a few people cash that in. Um, one guy is like offer. Yeah, you know, basically, he bought it so he could kill his friends. <laughs> cool. so, uh, and another one's uh, bought it for his for his. For his girlfriend, and because nothing says I love you like, you know, like have your girlfriend killed. Have your girlfriend Christmas mm. apparently that was her Christmas present. <laughs> so, uh, but it's been it's been it's been a, a popular perk oddly enough, um, and like I said when I when I rethought the the campaign for Indiegogo I, I basically rescaled everything down so it'd be a little bit more affordable um, because there's no you know. Like I said, it, it you know times be hard. So yeah, we've we've heard it. There's no there's no um, there's no easy way of working out these reward tiers. I mean, we've heard from Rich Thomas like how they keep refining how they do their kickstarters, and it's just like I can't I can't even imagine how you have to think in order to work out scaling these tiers and what you're giving away. And we figured yeah, it out. It's complicated. This time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's the best way I can say that the way you figure it out is by failing. <laughs> so, yeah, right. But uh, uh, but I've I'm I've been very encouraged, just shy of three thousand dollars. So we've, like I said, we're we're almost forty percent uh, funded, and um, and as of as of this recording, um, eleven almost ten days to go. Uh, the uh, I think the, the window shuts on at. 11:59 p.m. Pacific time on January the 16th, which is a Wednesday. And and things definitely always pick up in the uh, last week of a Kickstarter or Indiegogo campaign. I, so I've been very pleased. It, it's been it's been consistent, you know. Um, and uh, people have been passing the the information around. Um, uh, I've got about just shy of 2,000 people on my on my Facebook, and I'm I'm not as big a Twitter person as I should be, um, mainly because I have a real hard time keeping it short. 
um, but I've, I've been very encouraged by, by, uh, response and people really are, I think, starting to realize that, um, if you want to see these books, you're, you know, or these kind of books, you're, you're basically going to have to, you know, put your money where your mouth is really, you know, because when I first started publishing and getting in publishing as, as a writer, there were yeah. easily 20 publishers in New York. Now, to, depending on on you can't on how you count, four or five. They started hmm. absorbing each other, eating each other alive during the during the late 80s, early 90s. It was like watching the blob. I started off with uh, New American Library, and then they got bought up by by Viking, and then Viking got bought up by Penguin. And at one point, I was being published by Viking Penguin, which just I just had, penguin. <laughs> I had this vision of a penguin wearing one of those little hats singing opera. Yeah. Uh, and now Penguin is uh, Random House, or Penguin and Random House. And Penguin's actually owned by Pearson, which is a British company. And I think Random House is owned by Bertelsmann, which is German. <laughs> right. Looking yeah, I, I wouldn't know. Di- the digital, digital has changed everything i mean it's changing even how um the attitude towards like uh scientific journals and and like how much money universities are willing to spend in that so it's a lot has really changed um in the last well even in the last like 10 years um i think that leads into a a, a good question like about what advice nancy would you give to aspiring writers in particular because obviously you've you, you're writing Kill City with this uh, after this well after all within this boom of urban fantasy that's going on. Um, how do you find say the the motivation, inspiration, and uh, just you know what's what's what would you advice would you give people if they they want to get into say that into writing horror and urban fantasy yet may feel a little bit put off by the fact there's not another Twilight or not another, I don't know, Dresden Files or something on the shelves. It really doesn't change from what I've always told people, which is like, write for mm. yourself. Don't write for what other people, what you think yeah. other people might. And that's harder than you think. I've caught, uh, uh, even, I've, I've caught myself doing that, especially now when so easy just to go on Amazon and look at the reviews and it'd be completely um, uh, gutted. Mm. Um, you know, critics have always been a a bit of a problem for writers, but in ye olde days, um, uh, at least they were uh, few and far between. It's really hard not to be overwhelmed by the immediate critical reaction you can get online, and you have to just grow a skin. You, you have to have a, a have a skin and, and just keep pushing on. Right now, PR is probably more important than anything, especially if you don't have a background. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I, I consider myself lucky in that I did have a readership and, and years of, you know, of being in the trenches uh, in, in the dead tree publishing business. I've got contacts that can help me put covers together. I've got, I've got contacts that can help me edit. And that and that's the biggest thing I would tell people is that you no matter what you do you need an editor. Um, if you, yeah. if you, know, you need a second set of eyes because one of my biggest problems is I know what it's supposed to say, 
And so my my eyes will see what I'm trying to say as opposed to what's actually on the printed page. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, so you kind of need you, – you definitely need an editor. Um, and the thing is you just have to keep on – Keep on plugging. I mean, mm. people people read for for numerous reasons. Some people read for escapism. Some people read for enjoyment. Some people read for some um, wish fulfillment. Some people read for for you know to, for sexual gratification. There's definitely as many reasons to read as there are readers, and you just have to keep plugging at it. Now with all the and and I'm not saying don't send stuff to publishers because that still is a huge help if if you actually can get your books in a bookstore that really does help but things are changing so so drastically and dynamically right now if you're willing to put the work in as as your own PR department and 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 flog your work might might very well end up uh, doing better than someone who actually uh, has a, a contract with a with a major publisher. It's just in, in the long run, the uh, the biggest change I can see that uh, and and that has impacted me is that what most people don't understand is that writers don't uh, we don't live off our royalties. We live off advances, mm. and mm-hmm. and advances have all but disappeared from the industry. For uh, you know they've. It used to be, you know, they would pay you half up front and half on delivery, and now they'll pay you in thirds. Third on signing, a third on turning it in, which could be up to a year later, uh, and a year on publication, and a third on publication, which could also be up to a year later. Yeah. And the whole point of uh, advances is like, so you could take your t- take the time off to write the book. Hmm. And this is the problem with, like I said, all these these um, publishing companies being bought up and, and consumed by larger companies that aren't that really don't have a background in publishing, is they don't see the difference between a book and say a Hostess Twinkies. It's all product to them. They don't understand why you just can't, you know, just turn it out and stamp it out as fast as possible. And because I, I think at one point was it Joe Publishing was owned by Seagrams and they were owned by the same company that owned the Sea World. Uh, <laughs> um, Harper Collins at least you know say what you will about about Rupert Murdoch at least he he came from publishing so he, they have a better understanding of um, what it takes to to do these things. One of the biggest problems though is the, the these companies buy up publishing companies and can't figure out why they don't uh, why they don't make the same kind of money as movies mm. you know, they don't they, they can't figure out why they don't have the same back end and that's why you've seen basically everything but best sellers disappear from bookstores uh, they're, they're used to thinking in terms of selling in the millions or, or at least the hundreds of thousands and anything that that's less than that they don't really have any interest in so starting in the 90s they Kind of started turning their back again on um, horror and and dark fantasy because it, in their mind it wasn't worth the effort, wasn't a, a dependable enough market, and they're basically treating it. Uh, if you're not careful, it will go the same way as the westerns, mm. uh, which was uh, basically a genre that was allowed to uh, wither on the vine. I got you, but I mean, one of the cool things is that there's a lot of uh, 
a lot of small presses that have been coming out. Oh, yeah. uh, things like Pyre, which is just awesome. It's been an interesting uh, phenomenon uh, is the, the emergence of the small press in this in uh, taking up the slack. I've watched you know Cemetery Dance Press emerge, Subterranean. Uh, in fact, uh, Overlook um, Connection Press is is going to be uh, doing the the first three Sonya Blue novels in um, in a limited hardback edition. You know, the first one will be out sometime in this year. So, Nancy, uh, you've also worked quite a bit in in other settings as well, away from uh, Sonya Blue. So. Uh... Well, I guess we'll start off with a kind of a crossover. Uh, you had a, a novel, A Dozen Black Roses, which was actually a crossover between Vampire the Masquerade and Sonya Blue. Yes. So what kind of a background can you give us on that novel? Well, that was an interesting, uh, since the two series concepts were so similar, it was a way of, of, of kind of like uh, promoting both at, at the same time. And I, I can't exactly remember... Uh, how that came about. I, th- I, I know Rich, I was talking to Rich Thomas at one point about it and, and Stuart, and somehow we managed to get that, you know, get it, get the ball rolling. I, I think this was, this was after uh, Midnight Blue had come out and had done real well for them. That was the, the omnibus collection that collected uh, uh, Sunglasses After Dark, In the Blood, and um, Paint It Black, which at, the, at that time had only been released in... Um, England. So Midnight Blue did exceptionally well for uh, for White Wolf in their in their fiction category, and uh, they wanted to do a follow up, and and the idea was to do the crossover. And I will admit that I am not a gamer. I played uh, Dungeons and Dragons when it was first starting to really pop up as a commercial thing in uh, mid seventies, and when I was in college, I had friends that were were into that, and and I. I did some some gaming through them enough to get the, the feel for it and uh, and understand the, the ideas. But I found it for me it was easier for me to just write stories on my own than to sit there and wait for some guy to roll dice. <laughs> right, like, right. It's like yeah. hurry up! I know what I'm going to do. Just you know. <laughs> so it, it, I just instead of like following that path, I just followed the writing path and. I think the first time I was aware of Vampire the Masquerade was at a convention I was attending in Pennsylvania. And I can't remember much else about it, except that I was made, I think I was in Pennsylvania. And, uh, and that's when I was introduced to the concept of Vampire the, the Masquerade because the, they were having a, a, a LARP in the middle of the lobby <laughs> or something right. like that. <laughs> And then, I, like I said, I got involved with 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 White Wolf. They get, they basically sent me the original Vampire the Masquerade, the hardback, uh, and and also the one for uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse. Okay. And so basically, I was able to I I, I very lo- loosely you know base my stuff. I think there was some rewriting done when I turned in the uh, on their end when I turned it in just to keep it a little closer to to what uh, was intended. Uh, with gaming, because um, but the basic premise is with with uh, a dozen black roses is that it's uh, uh, a spaghetti western. <laughs> <laughs> Vampires. Yep. It's it's basically a fist. It's a fistful of dollars slash Yojimbo, but with uh, Sonya mm-hmm. Blue, um, and the, and the whole feel is supposed to be that kind of the the 
surreal, you know, where the hell are we in, in space and time feel that you get from spaghetti westerns where, yeah, I know this is supposed to be the West, but it sure looks, seems a hell of a lot like Spain to me. Or, <laughs> you know, it doesn't quite seem like the, like the, the West that I grew up watching on in cowboy movies. And, the whole feel is it when you're reading it is you should imagine all the sound effects being post dubbed hollow and, and, um, and it, it's basically kind of exists in its own, in its own bubble. And for the longest, it was considered out of canon within the Sonya blue universe. And when I, uh, contacted, uh, white wolf, Mike Tenney last year about getting the rights back to it to, to do it as an ebook. He didn't have any problems with that as long as I agreed to take all the White Wolf references the, and all the, the Vampire the Masquerade gameplay references out of the out of the book. And so I ended up uh, rewriting A Dozen Black Roses. It's now I would say about and there's at least thirty percent of it that's new. Okay. Um, and, and 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 now it's technically within the canon, but and still set in Dead Town, which is Baltimore, by the way, in case anyone was wondering. This was pre-wire too, <laughs> so um, when, I, when I when I picked the setting, I had just gone. I had spent a, I had spent a week in Baltimore, and it was like, dear God, <laughs> <laughs> I was in like one of the scarier parts of the city at the time, uh, it was, and, and it also kind of combines elements of, of Philadelphia which was equally kind of scary to go to at the time. Uh, 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 my second husband had friends and family who lived in Philadelphia in a section of the city that basically had been allowed to rot. And I'd never seen that before, except, except in my own hometown, which was hmm. my own hometown uh, caught fire in the eighties. And, uh, uh the downtown burned to the ground and was never rebuilt because there was a Walmart out on the highway. I lived a Southern Gothic life, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> wow, cool. So it's I have a I have a lot of fondness for a dozen black roses, uh, and, okay. and and there's a lot of a lot of reality mixed in there. And the uh, the blood ballet occurs exotic dancer who who basically bleeds while she dances in uh, a dozen black roses in case anyone hasn't read it uh which is actually based on a performance art piece that i saw when i was looking <laughs> yep <laughs> you right down to the white tutu because <laughs> i think it's important uh, one yep. thing i was going to say because uh, obviously i've i've now reached the end of of uh sunglasses after dark and it's um i mean i think there's a lot which obviously i think the gamers listen to it. I think there's a lot, obviously, they can appreciate and ideas they can make use of their own games. But of course, the vampires, you know, Sonya Blue and the vampires in your setting, Nancy, are quite different to the Vampire the Masquerade ones. So, um, could you, I mean, because you wrote uh, A Dozen Black Roses, then, so could you highlight what you'd say are the kind of maybe novel or interesting qualities or, or, um, uh, just things uh, that stand out about Sonya Blue and those type of vampires compared to what we may normally see. In the original edition, there's a there was some emphasis on blood wizards, and I I think I actually added some stuff there that wasn't originally in the canon uh, for, for Vampire the Masquerade. So I just so when I rewrote it, I kept it because 
because I think I, I I think I may have invented it. I'm, I can't remember exactly. That, that's 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 one of the drawbacks is now is is uh, what I what I've done with the Sony Blue series has been replicated so many times. Mm. Uh, I'm now being accused of imitating stuff that I created. <laughs> okay, so that, that's that's the same as when we hear um, oh, what's the thing that drives me at the wall? It's when you hear gamers complain that that Games Workshop ripped off StarCraft, and it's just like, oh, you poor poor oh, yeah. people. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, stuff. It's just like Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. One of the biggest differences between Sonya Blue's vampires and the uh, World of Darkness vampires is the is the the distinction in the clans. I don't. I have what what are called broods, okay. uh, which are basically you know huge families of vampires. I mean the um, created by you know a particular vampire, and they're kind of utilized as as private armies or, or bodyguards or whatever you want to call them. Uh, but there's there's no distinction in terms of their aesthetics yeah they're that they are what they are um and and the idea that is the longer you remain in, in my world the longer you re- you remain a vampire you kind of start off um kind of kind of slightly brain damaged nobody starts off as dracula uh, no in my world except sonya because she never died uh the, the whole idea is that during the course of a vampire's existence, it's slowly regaining the mental acuity and intelligence that it had as a human, or slowly regaining its host's ability to, to pass for human. Uh, when they start off, they're, they're not very socially acceptable. When you consider a young vampire in, in Sonya's world, they're, they mostly pass themselves off as, you know, as like homeless junkies. Uh, and, and the whole premise kind of being that um, vampires, like like any animal in the wilds, any predator, they prey on the weakest of us, the weakest of the herd, the ones on the outliers. And that and that would include, you know, like, you know, sex workers, um, drug addicts, uh, you, know, the, you know, transients, the poor, the very poor, you know, the underclass. Uh, people who don't have the protection that uh, uh, that comes with wealth and, and status in society, people who will be missed. So basically, most vampires' broods are in in Sonya's world are composed largely of of people who would be considered you know, society's dregs. And I was going to say, because like with the the idea of these broods, there's um they're they're more kind of um they're because obviously Masquerade has like you know your clan say venturing you're really good at or like dominating people's minds or your clan can growl and you're good at like turning into creatures and doing a whole shape shifting uh, lot. So in the Sony Blue World, then the broods are more um they don't have that kind of like clan kind of thing. They each of the vampires has its own kind of set of I wouldn't say set of abilities but their own they're a bit more unique maybe or well but basically the the ones the brood masters they're the yeah. in class they all have various abilities you know some are stronger than others but they all have like 
the ability to you know to cloud men's minds, obviously, and um, they all have there's a certain they all possess a certain um, level of telepathy, mm-hmm. mental powers, hypnosis, uh, and it's basically all it's all based on willpower. Yeah, how, str- how strong your will is, how willing you are to uh, to assert yourself, and and it's kind of set up in in many ways like a like a wolf pack or a dog pack you know you have, mm-hmm. you have your alphas and um and oh there's only one or two alphas and then after that you have you know number of betas and then you get down into deltas and gammas and um, the the gammas would probably in this case be the ghouls the revenants uh, the ones that you know kind of like you know the ones that didn't resurrect properly yeah uh, yeah and and kind of and, and to many extent are either used as, as cannon fodder or garbage disposals. You don't need hundreds of thousands of, of vampires uh, when when you're feeding on humans on a regular basis. You have to. They have a tendency to in, in Sonya's world. Most of them, if they, if they don't need uh, to any replacements to their ranks, they'll they'll snap the neck of their victims mm-hmm. and then. Let the ghouls take care of the uh, the empties, as they're called. I think it's interesting because obviously, um, like, there's obviously now been uh, a newer version of vampire that came out, and I think um, it would be interest. It's 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 an interesting enough. It's a good enough setting and in in different enough from Vampire the Masquerade and even Vampire the Requiem, which we have now, that uh, I think there's enough books and hints and tips within all of these books that it would be fairly easy to you know remix the rules and suddenly you've got Sonya Blue using the storyteller system you can you know run a setting that pretty much would replicate those type of vampires that might be something cool to write at some point um I might have to have a go at that let's have a trading card out there Oh, yeah. Actually, uh, someone in my local uh, VTest group, Vampire the Eternal Struggle, actually has a Sonya Blue deck. Oh, wow. Cool. And she's ridiculous and pretty <laughs> much just uh, messes up the entire table. I think it was designed with uh, with a dozen black roses in mind, where she kind of like switches employers and, and pretty much just uh, wreaks havoc <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> yeah, she owes no um, allegiance to anyone. Except those she deems worthy. So, um, uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, I'll, well, the, the, the Sonya Blue universe also has other creatures within it. Obviously. Yes, yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, like the, you know, the, there's werewolves and um, there's the ogres, which are also serve the same purpose. Uh, they, they serve both the uh, vampires as both muscle and uh, garbage disposals as well since they're you know, tend to be cannibalistic um there's any uh there's various different shape-shifting races in, in our world we've only seen a couple but um uh, like i said there's ghouls there's various other tender races mm-hmm. uh, and basically the, I, I think the biggest um that may be the biggest contribution I, I made to the urban fantasy genre is the the hiding in plain sight concept mm-hmm. where where mankind has been basically genetically bred um, over the years to not see these things that control them and uh, 
control their society and their cultures and prey on them for uh, various different reasons. Most of them are rather disdainful. The top tier would have to be of, of the manipulators are, are, the, are the vampires, obviously, as, as they're the ones that absorb uh, humanity, take them over, basically a form of demon that uh, spread through, through feeding. And, and which is why, I guess, I, I, having, having created that, and <laughs> that concept and, and, and used it in, in all the novels, that's when, when I did do a legitimate urban fantasy series with Penguin called Golgotham. I made it so that it's just it's, – everyone knows that these things exist, and they have a neighborhood <laughs> in New York where kind of like Chinatown, where, where, and, they have a, and they have a tourist bureau. And so there's no hiding, you know, it's just like, yeah, not only are they not hiding from humanity, they're like, yeah, come on in, <laughs> buy a t-shirt. <laughs> I was like, okay, come, come, come stay for the shopping. Yeah, come for the curses, stay for the shopping. And it's, and it's a little bit more lighthearted than, than the uh, Sonic Blue series. And there's no vampires in it. Uh, yeah, there are werewolves and, and shapeshifters, but, but I, I just made a conscious decision to, to be, make it a vampire-free zone for that series excellent and the uh third Golgotham novel is going to be coming out soon correct um i'm in the process of finishing it um okay uh, uh, it's magic and loss and the the first two are uh right hand magic and left hand magic and uh those are currently available in in, in book form and and ebook um and the same will be true for magic and loss i've also got a, a, a ebook only release right now from uh, Biting Dog Publications called uh, Absalom's Wake, which is um, a dark fantasy version of Melville, you know, dark fantasy story, you know, slash horror story set on a uh, 1840s whaling vessel. It's a serialized uh, story. The first two installments are out, and it's going to be six uh, installments total. Wow, cool. So, yeah, serialized. That's good. That's definitely good. Yeah, well, we're basically experimenting to see if... And the first one's free, you know. Ah, okay. There, yeah. That's how you count it. <laughs> that's the hook, yeah. <laughs> so, so, but, you know, it's on, it's on uh, Kindle, Nook, Kobo, Sony, all that, iTunes. So, um, yeah, I, I'm enjoying writing that. I'm, uh, yeah, basically, I'm writing it as it's being published. So it's kind of like an experiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nancy, you also mentioned before the show that you were uh, doing some stuff on Hollywood. Uh, yeah. What's, what's up with that? Yes, I, I have a I have a uh, manager out there, uh, Judy Capage, who's um, basically uh, in, in charge of and responsible for the uh, Die Hard, uh, Death Wish, and Stepfather franchises out there. Uh, <laughs> and she's been around for uh, a while. She used to work for uh, Sterling Sullivan on uh, Route 66. You know, back in the day, and later worked uh, for Quinn Martin on uh, uh, Quincy. Uh, so she's she's been around. She she was also a, a vice president over at uh, Hanna Barbera. Um, right. Okay. Uh, so she and her her son's an animator who's done quite a few things, and she's a big promoter of of my work. She's uh, and uh, she's been shopping uh, Sunglasses After Dark um, as a television series. Um, ah. ah, okay. With a uh, spec pilot script written by uh, me and a uh, young writer named Michael Rose, I've been tooling it around for uh, for off and on for the last year, trying to find um, 
someone uh, willing to um, to take a gamble on Sonny Blue. So it's you know we we everyone seems to love the, um, the concept. We're just it's just a question of, of finally get finding that person, that producer who gets it, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we're we're out there plugging away with that, and with uh, also have uh, proposals out for uh, a couple of my weird westerns, uh, Lynch, and uh, for one, and um, and also uh, for Angels on Fire. So we're we're basically out there out there tooling away trying to. And trying to get Hollywood, trying to make it big in Hollywood. <laughs> All right, good. Yeah, because it's kind of what with everything we've had out in recent years. It's um, it would seem like the TV audience has kind of maybe grown and matured to the point where the that that the portrayal of Sonya Blue on on screen would be actually fully viable and not toned down too much, maybe. Yeah, I think so, it would. Uh, an excellent show for like FX or uh, yeah yeah given given you know American Horror Story <laughs> mm, yeah yeah and Breaking Bad and the like I think it I uh, I may finally be and, and I think maybe we're finally getting to the point where people are not as threatened by a female character uh, yeah. the way Sonya is uh, that may have been our biggest problem um, it, it's not like I haven't been poked with a stick by Hollywood about Sonio repeatedly over the years. I mean, uh, I think the first time was with, uh, from Orion pictures and, uh, and, but I ended up, um, uh, uh, hanging up on the phone on them when they're basically in the middle of, of, of talking to him. They said, well, is, is there any way we can make her a man? No. And I just hung up. <laughs> that was it. That was the end of that, you know? And, um, uh, at one point, we we actually I like in 2002 when like I said when I set Sonya aside back in 2002 oh, uh, uh, that I had been uh, she'd been optioned for uh, film development uh, by uh, Palomar Pictures and uh, we actually had a like a Golden Globe award winning screenwriter set up to do the screenplay and everything and then. And the only thing that that really screwed it up for us uh, was the the movie that they that they had financed uh, was um, uh, ended up losing hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and and basically that everything uh, and they, and basically um, uh, everything that was on the slate for the development after that was just wiped clean. But uh, but, but but yeah, we 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 gotten fairly far on uh, at, at one point with Sonya. So, so which makes me think that it's, you know, it's, it's her time coming around again, especially in television, because uh, I think um, eventually there will be no distinction between television and movies. It'll just be, it'll, it will all be streaming, streaming them. It'll just be a question whether we're streaming them at home or, we're, or we all decide to go stand, sit in a large uh, theater together. Yeah, no, that's uh, cool. It's pretty insightful. Yeah, probably gonna be true. Yeah, great. So, um, we have uh, one question from uh, Christopher Hilton, uh, mm-hmm. and he was wondering if Nancy, you're gonna be revisiting the characters of your vampire graphic novel anytime soon. 
Well, I kind of have already uh, in a in a uh, slightly different form, uh, mainly because um, not not for, not not for the foreseeable future, because um, uh, DC owns those. Owns, mm-hmm. uh, okay. They bought the rights to to Dom Pierre from me. Um, and um, it originally was a creator-owned series, but they bought the rights from me. Um, uh, but Dom Pierre kind of was uh, uh, was the imp- was the basis for uh, my um, my own young adult vampire series, <laughs> um, uh, Vamps, uh, the basic mm-hmm. vampire world, uh, the the concept of the of the uh, vampires that were ruling things and uh, unseen in the background. What would have evolved to Dompier was uh, was utilized uh, in uh, in vamps, which basically had you know uh, vamp- vampires as a living species, not as the undead per se. There were undead, but they're uh, the undead are created by the living vampires. With humans, uh, okay. they they become undead. And they um, they share many of the same characteristics as the va- as the living vampires, except they are they um, uh, have no immunity to lo- to light, um, and they can um, so they can't go outside during the day. If they do, they just turn to dust, and um, and they're basically uh, have no free will. <laughs> they're uh, they're the servant class for the living vampires. Gotcha. Uh, cool. So um, yeah, that that. Um, but yeah, I I, in re- I know that there are at least somewhere in the bowels of DC there are uh, the unfinished, the uninked pencils for the first three issues of what have been the uh, Dompier a monthly series because uh, they were shown to me. Whether anything ever happens to them, I don't know. Yeah, they've been they've been sitting in limbo for over fifteen years. It'd be, I think it'd be interesting if they, I don't know, because I know they they right now have their Justice League Dark series going on, which basically kind of has all the supernatural, paranormal kind of uh, characters. Uh, brought together because obviously they merged DC Universe with the with anything from Vertigo. So you've got like John Constantine and you know Zatanna and so forth. So the question is whether they would even make use of the characters from your graphic novel in that series. Um, well, that's just me throwing that out as a as yeah. you never know what DC could do for them uh, for for what DC has evolved into. I mean. Mm. The, the DC that exists now is nothing like what I used to work for. Yeah. So um, it, it's completely different. Uh, I, w- I was one of the, uh, I started working for DC before Vertigo was created. In fact, I was one of the authors um, that Vertigo was kind of created for. You know, mm-hmm. Neil Gaiman and you know, uh, Grant and uh, Grant Orison. You know, we, we're all working on various titles that basically spurred the, the birth of Vertigo. And, um, and it's been rather melancholy watching it uh, implode over the last few years. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. But, but uh, I'm working on Swamp Thing. That was, that was uh, 
uh, I still have a, an immense amount of fondness for the character and, and all the characters associated with it. Even Constantine. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Mike, do we have any other more questions on the list? Or... No, I think that's about it. You um, push everything, I think, on that. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I think that's it for the uh, interview portion. So uh, with that, we'll move on over to the secret frequency. It's under the stairs. <laughs> so, Chris, what do you have for us tonight? I have something which has been stuck in the back of my head for a while. Um... Uh, I saw it in a uh, uh, a magazine that's in the that's released in the UK called Paranormal Magazine. You can actually get it as a digital um, download. The uh, magazine. So this is a creature in there, which um, that magazine kind of alerted me to a while ago, and I thought it's great. And then I forgot what it was called, and I had to find it all again. So what we have here for the secret frequency is the I really hope I pronounce this right. The Kikoloshe. It is a uh, from Zulu mythology, and that's why I thought it was great to have something from uh, from the Dark Continent. The Tokoloshe, or Tokoloshe, or the Hili, from the Zosa word, which I'm not going to pronounce, so we'll look at that on, uh, on the wiki, which we'll link you to, is a dwarf-like water sprite. It is considered a mischievous and evil sprite uh, spirit, and can become invisible by swallowing a pebble. The uh, Tokoloshes are called upon by uh, you know, evil people to cause trouble for others. At least, uh, at its least harmful, it can be used to scare children, but its power extends to causing illness and even death upon the victim. Uh, the way to get rid of it is to call upon uh, Nanga, which is a witch doctor, who has the power to banish these creatures from the area. The legend goes that the Tokoloshe uh, resembles a sort of zombie, poltergeist, or gremlin. Uh, and is created by obviously evil South African shamans who have been offended by someone. Um, which at this point then is interesting to point out that in essence this creature uh, is very similar to the idea of the uh, Tibetan uh, Tulpa, which is a, uh, mm. a, a spirit golem, which leads us into what we can use this for. Um, the Tokoloshe, as I said, is. Um, is created by shamans. Uh, they may also wander, causing mischief. So obviously, there's cases where they they are they can be control of them can be lost. Uh, other details include its gremlin-like appearance. When they say gremlin, here we're we talking about the gremlins from like gremlins with mogwais. I don't know. And has appearance know. of gouged out uh, gouged out eyes. Uh, the Tokoloshe, according to Zulu shaman Credo Muta, has been known to take on many forms. One form is described above, but others have been uh, portrayed, such as being uh, bear-like, uh, humanoids. Um, some Zulu people are still superstitious when it comes to things like uh, the Tokoloshe, a hairy creature created by a wizard to harm his enemies. Uh, they're also known to do heinous things, such as biting off people's toes while they sleep, and of course, rape. Uh, according to legend, the only way to keep a tokoloshe away at night is to put a brick beneath each leg of one's bed. However, this will not protect anything but the person whose bed is uh, upon whose bed it is, uh, as it may instead cause havoc not involving set people. Uh, they get their power from a hot poker 
thrust into the crown of the body during creation. So, Mike, quite weird, hey? Uh, extremely, extremely. Uh, it kind of reminded me of the uh, melon heads in some ways. Mm. Uh, my immediate uh, ideas for it, of course, are it makes for a great kind of spirit or um, spirit, either a spirit that's called upon or a spirit that's fabricated by a mage. Uh, it could also act as a very interesting concept of, if you want to kind of play around the idea of the uh, link, same ideas of a tulpa, it's potentially the African. Uh, legend that goes with the Uglan uh, Prometheans. Um, mm -hmm. Also, I guess uh, you could also look at it as being some sort of fae-type creature for Changeling Lost or Changeling Dreaming, so um, I'm trying to think of other things. Any other ideas, Mike? Well, I mean, yeah, in Changeling Dreaming, um, yeah. you have the uh, the red caps, and these guys, uh, while they are kind of aligned more with like this uh, water element, um, they do bear some resemblance, so you could easily use them as this uh, more exotic version of the red cap from uh, South Africa. <laughs> cool. Yep. I'm trying to think of the other games. Um, possibly it could make a good kind of like Femori for Werewolf the Apocalypse. Uh, to go with a hairy Absolutely. creature, bear-like uh, thing. Ooh, ah, of course. Uh, referring to a hairy creature. Um, <laughs> as the... Uh, at least as it may be visible in the dreaming, uh, this might be a uh, good inspiration for one of the Autumn People, which okay. are the uh, sort of antagonist splat for Changeling Dreaming. Okay, cool. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else. Obviously, it would make a great kind of antagonist for uh, Hunter. Um, and, yeah, I think I think the cool thing is it's just a, uh, a non-European, you know, kind of Western-centric kind of creature, and um, you can really just fit into a chronicle to give kind of a bit more variety, or at least start off as an idea for maybe setting games in Africa. Uh, I mean, there's an entire book um, devoted to the vampires of that region for Vampire Masquerade, but we've not really had much in New World of Darkness that is uh, direct that you know leans in that direction. So, you know, I think. Uh, there's definitely ways to use it. Yeah, this creature also has the lamest weakness ever. Oh, something's already, uh, you know, got weakness to silver. Okay, <laughs> they have a weakness to cold iron. Well, this guy's gonna have weakness to bricks. A bricks, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's... I think, I think also what's interesting to say, uh, you put a brick under each leg of your bed at night. It's, um... I wonder whether there's a similarity the the fear of this creature is very similar to kind of like um, the fear that uh, you have in Japanese horror to um, you know the creatures that crawl across the floor because that's all related to you know sleeping on the floor and yeah cool I think that covers yep. secret frequency there I think it does and with that let's uh, move on to closing remarks. All right, so I think that's just about it for our show. Um, of course, we have one last question that we always like to ask a new <laughs> guest. So, Nancy, if you could be a household appliance, which would you be and why? Hmm. Toaster oven. Toaster <laughs> oven. That's a very good one. <laughs> yeah, it comes up a lot. It does yeah, come up a lot. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a yeah. very versatile uh, appliance. 
I mean, you could do toast, and you can also cook a small chicken in it. So yeah, no, that's you know, very true. You're just not, you know, you can, and you can, and then with, with toast, you can actually do bagels. Mm. Mm, yep. So you know, and you don't have, you know, you're not just limited, and you could do more than 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 two pieces of toast. <laughs> yeah, you could stack them up. You're you, right. You can you can lay them out. You can, it depends on the size of your toaster oven. But yes, and and uh, and I'm not saying that just because I bought my fiance a toaster oven for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Great. Good. Good answer. All right. Yeah. So Nancy, what do you have like a, a website or uh, someplace where people can keep track of what you've been doing? Yes, uh, I am. I am out there on the interwebs. Um, uh, I have a blog spot. It's a uh, true Sonya blue, um, dot blogspot dot com. And I'm also on Facebook. Uh, you can, uh, I believe it's, uh, Nancy dot Collins on Facebook. Um, very good. You can you can find me on you can find me out there. I've got I'm also on I'm also on the Twitter, um, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't Twitter as much as I should because I have a hard time keeping it short. So um, I'm I am I am out there, and uh, you can find my um, my my all um, all my uh, ebooks through uh, Hopedale Press on Amazon and Nook and iTunes, and I've got uh, stuff from. The Sonya Blue uh, stuff is out there also on all those platforms in uh, ebook form. And you can find uh, the Golgotham books uh, at Barnes Noble and, uh, and Books a Million and whatever mm-hmm. has replaced borders in your town. <laughs> and, uh, and they're also available in, in ebook form. So, and I have cool. audiobooks too. Uh-huh. Uh, yes. I've been producing audiobooks. I've got. Uh, Three or four right now. All all my weird westerns are now available in um, in uh, audiobook form, and uh, also um, I have a um, Return to Hell House, which was the uh, uh, an authorized uh, prequel to uh, Richard Matheson's Hell House that I wrote for the uh, Matheson Tribute Anthology. He is Legend. Uh, that's out and oh, okay. on audiobook and ebook form too. And of course, mm-hmm. your uh, Indiegogo campaign is uh, still going on, and we'll be sure to we'll be sure to link that in our show notes so that uh, people can check it out. Yes, and I appreciate you all um, being interested in in helping me get the word out and being willing and interested in talking to me. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I I have uh, a lot of fond memories of White Wolf back uh, uh, back in the day. Um, I think it's moved its base of operations yet again. But uh, yes, I have, I have some some very fond memories from those days. Uh, it's great to hear. Great to sure. hear. Thank you. And of course, you can check out uh, Darker Days Radio on uh, Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Darker Days Radio. We've got our Twitter account, which is at Darker Days Radio. And then we've got our G Plus community, which is now the most popular it is. World of Darkness <laughs> community on G Plus, which is awesome. We may not have as many members, but they're certainly not all lurkers, so it's really great to see that kicking off. And it's great when I uh, leave the computer for about eight hours and come back, <laughs> and there's 20 things for me to check out. My like 20 flags, so it's like 100 comments. My phone just keeps going off with notifications of uh, people posting stuff there. It's just insane. Um, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> and of course, we can Good be stuff. contacted via Gmail. At, uh, do you want to give the Gmail uh email mike dark days radio 
at gmail.com. Good stuff. All right, Nancy, we want to thank you again uh, for joining us on the show and uh, all the best of luck with uh, your upcoming campaign and, and everything uh, with Sonia Blue. Well, thank you. Like I said, I appreciate it. And, and if nothing else, this has also inspired me to get involved, to finally get off my ass and, and, and install Skype. <laughs> so, um, like... All right. All right. I think that's it for the show. So, everyone, thanks for listening and good night. Ciao. All right.